Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So Leviticus 8 is where we're picking up tonight from where we left off. For context, and because the recording last week was cut off, God has brought his people out of Egypt. They've arrived at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God's giving his people all of these, this is how we're going to do things in, in this new kingdom. And this is going to be something that for the until the end of this era is how you're going to do it. So he's given these instructions. Every one of these instructions sets the Hebrews apart from the pagan nations around them. Um, and now it's time to get it started. In fact, in, in chapter 8, we're going to pick up a little narrative. Something's going to actually happen where we've had a lot of rules and regulations. Now they're going to do those rules and regulations. We're going to make those things happen. Since we are defined as a holy priesthood in 1 Peter 2, I keep referencing 1 Peter 2, but I wanted to start off tonight and just read it, um, where this is why we read about the priesthood as Christians that are in a new era under Jesus Christ. It's because these rules apply to who we are and how we should act too, because, <coughs> sorry, Paul, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we don't kill cows, but we offer spiritual sacrifices that are the same as the cows when it comes to the spiritual message that they send. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So these images that are being called to mind to every Jewish people that you see throughout the New Testament, those images get used throughout the Old Testament too, and the images get set up here in Leviticus. So that's why we learn by analogy these ceremonies that they have and why they're so important. So what does it mean to be set aside for God's work? Leviticus 8 verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, the bull is the sin offering, the two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. Gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, all the congregation is about two million people. That's hard to do in one place. So likely they're bringing together kind of all the elders of the congregation for this anointing ceremony that's going to happen for the priests. God repeats how to do this because he says you're going to do it. He lays it out in Exodus 28 and 29, which we've already done. But now we're going to actually consecrate or anoint these priests. It's done in public. It's done in front of everybody. Um, and the tabernacle gets one a new name in this verse, which I think we referenced before too. Tabernacle gets called a lot of different things. Here it's the tabernacle of meeting, which is moed or a congregational or a place for appointments. It's a place where you meet people. It's a gathering spot. It's not a mall or a coffee shop, it's the tabernacle, the place where you're going to meet people, get together. So none of these things, the clothes, the oil, the animals, the bread, none of them have any significance. Notice that in the Hebrew religion, these are all kind of mundane things. But when brought to God and brought into the tabernacle, they take on 
huge significance, spiritual meaning and spiritual kind of relevance that they have. So there's symbolic value that goes well beyond their market value. Likewise, with the holy priesthood, we don't have a heck of a lot of value, but when we bring what we do have to the kingdom, God takes that and makes it more valuable than it is. It says to gather all the people. So they're going to witness this. These priests have to go through this ceremony in front of as many people as they can fit in that area. So Moses, verse 4, did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Remember Moses, one, one way to read this that I think is mistaken is that Moses is, is, in, is indicating what to do here. Every time Moses talks, he says, this is what the Lord has commanded me to do. The people of Israel did not have to take that on faith because they heard God talk on Mount Sinai. They saw God on top of Mount Sinai and they're going to see his presence in the tabernacle and they saw his presence as they left Exodus. So they don't have to take that Moses is talking to God on faith. They got to see it and witness it for themselves. So there's a validity in what Moses is saying and he continues to give the glory to God. So they also, not only could they see God, but remember they heard his audible voice when he, get, when he was first talking at the base of Mount Sinai on the third day. So the power of God is going to then, in a, in a, in chronologically in a, few, in, in a bit when they set this up, is going to light that fire in the tabernacle too. So they're going to actually feel that heat and be able to do that. So it's interesting when God establishes the Hebrew religion, he doesn't do it through Moses as a cult of personality. It's not like Moses had this big idea and he brought his golden tablets out or he had a secret message from God or a hidden truth or um, confusing puzzle-like Confucius statements. He came out and he was able to talk to a whole group of people, millions of people, and say, you heard God. This is what God said to do, so let's do it. So he's going to wash them, clothe them, and anoint them, and then there's going to be sacrifices that are given to finish this process. So tonight we're going to look at that, how the priests get consecrated or get anointed. Verse 6, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Throughout this, I'm going to make this point up here, but notice this throughout the rest of the chapter. The priests don't do anything to themselves. Everything gets done to them. So Moses is going to wash them. They don't wash themselves. They have to receive the priesthood more so than do it. When they get washed, you're going to see they put on clothes next, which just made me think, if you're trying to picture this whole thing, they've got this lineup of priests that they're going to anoint for the tabernacle, largely naked in front of the whole congregation. Think of how humbling that would be. At best, they probably have a loincloth on, right? A little Jewish de decency and we'll keep it PG. But there's, it's still a humbling thing to have your clothes off in front of the, your whole congregation. They start with nothing, and everything gets put on them in order to serve the Lord. So in verse 7, he then puts a tunic on him after he washes them, and he girds that with a sash, and he clothes them with a robe and puts the ephod on him, and he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. All of these are described back in Exodus 25, chapters 25 through 29, where we went through each of those pieces of clothing. There's layers of meaning, imagery, and focus, and if you want a refresher on that this week, you can go back and listen to those chapters. But all of these things have a lot of intention and meaning. He puts those clothes on. At, the, at this point, he's getting Aaron all set up. God chooses these people and has picked them out. 
And God picks these priests to be accountable to him and to him alone. In fact, it's assumed that the, the priests will speak for God because God has picked them. In 1 Samuel 2, Eli has sin in his home and God sends a prophet to rebuke Eli. The man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your fathers when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense and wear an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? See, the message from the prophet here is all in the terms of this is all God's work and what God's doing. God picks the priests. God dresses them. God puts them in the place. God commands them on what to do. Jesus also does this when he picks his disciples and tells them to make disciples of all men. So that behavior that Jesus has fits this model. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go out and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and that wherever you ask in the name of my Father, that he may give you. So that robe that's being put on them, remember the robe had bells and pomegranates all the way around the basis of it. And the bells would ring every time they took a step. You'd hear little ringing bells. And the pomegranates are one of the fruits that are basically the most seeded fruits you can find. They're full of seeds. Both the bells and the pomegranates together come to represent the word of God. The word of God also has seeds that get planted in our heart. And everywhere we walk and everywhere we go, we should be reminded of the word of God. It's why we come to a Bible study once a week or twice a week or three times a week. Or if you're like one of my friends, he used to go five nights a week when he first got saved because he just wanted to learn the word. The more you have the word in your heart, the more seeds it has, the more fruit that gets produced. And that fruit is part of what just got put on this priest, right? Constant reminder of the scripture, constant reminder that we didn't choose to be believers. God chose us. And then you get into all that stuff where some people say, well, what if God doesn't choose me? And it's like, if you're asking that question, he's probably choosing you, right? I know people that go through large parts of their life and they don't ask those questions. So if you're even wrestling with that, God's probably calling you out. And God also says that he doesn't want anyone to perish. No, not one. So he calls everyone to this priesthood. The ephod is colorful, mostly blue. It's going to set these priests apart. And then he put the breastplate on them, verse 8. And he put the urim and the thummim in the breastplate. Remember the breastplate was a pocket. It was a folded over pocket and there'd be two rocks inside there, a black one and a white one. <coughs> Excuse me. And they would use those stones for decision making. So kind of, it feels weird to me. I kind of wrestle with this a little bit. When you would come to a priest and say, should I do this or should I do that? They'd say, well, if I pull out the urim, that's a yes. If I pull out the thorum, that's a no. And they would randomly pull one out and let God, you know, toss those rocks around in the pocket. So there's a place then for that kind of just letting God pick. I would walk away from the priest going, really, I can go roll some dice myself and make decisions that way. But when the priest is anointed in this kind of process that we're going to see tonight, God does work with the urim and the thorum, and he'll do it throughout the Old Testament. Verse 9, and he put the turban, the mitre, on his head. Also on the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Remember that plate says holiness to the Lord in Exodus 39.30? They don't say what it says here. 
Verse 10, also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. I like how the implements and the priests are getting anointed together. Kind of basically, Aaron, you're a tool. You're as important as the altar, right? And there's some humility that comes with that. Compare this to like Egyptian priests that were second only to the Pharaoh, right? Power, prestige. They had political power. They had spiritual power. They had slaves. They had wealth. They had land. This guy gets compared to the other implements that are in the temple. Priests are the tools of God, and they're not gods in and of themselves. So the tabernacle gets anointed. 11, he, Moses, splashed some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils and the lava and the base and consecrated them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 11, it says sprinkled or splashed. In verse 12, the word is poured, which means to completely dump it on his head. So whatever's left of the anointing oil, just gets he gets doused. It's in his beard. It's on everything. And notice that it never gets washed off. Like that oil is just soaked in everywhere on this priest, which I would feel grimy and just want to like bathe. But they don't bathe. They put the clothes on right over the oil. It's poured out. Yatsak is the Hebrew word. It's an interesting choice of words, even in, in Hebrew, because it doesn't even mean to douse. It means to pour or to dump. The oil then is left right there to flow or to be ever flowing is, the, is kind of the connotation of that word. The pour word actually gets used mostly, this Hebrew word. I said it's a unique word. It mostly gets used when you pour hot metal into a cast. And you want to pour that in the cast so that it not only fills the cast, but it kind of overflows the cast. And then when you shut it or you seal it or you put the top on, it squeezes out all the stuff around the sides. You want to fill to the point of overflowing, not just measuring. It's not pouring like in cooking pouring. It's pouring in like you want to pour it until it's full. And that's what's going on with Moses. He's pulling this oil, which represents or symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And he's going to pour it into his priests until they're full. By implication, he wants to firmly establish or cast them with the Holy Spirit. Just like when you pour hot molten metal into a cast, you're doing it so that you can shape or make something. It's a creation term. Jesus also gets this when he's anointed, Luke 4.1. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, filled to overfilling, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So as Jesus started his ministry, the same kind of thing happens and it's referenced with that same term. The Holy Ghost or that oil is filling up. To consecrate, kadash, is to sanctify, prepare, dedicate. But it has an interesting connotation in making something holy or setting it apart. The point of consecration is to set these men apart for the ministry. Not only do they look different with the clothing, clothing they're going to smell different with that oil that's been poured over them. But they're going to be different too, and that's the point. These things all should add up to being different. In that sense, it's not just a symbolic gesture. It also literally sets them apart from other people. I like the ways that they're already being set apart. First of all, this happens. They start naked in front of the people or mostly naked. So they start with being set apart in their humility to do that before people. They're set apart in that they're following these duties or this process in an orderly way. 
and they're set apart in holiness and in the Holy Spirit. Exodus 40.15 says the son should be anointed, but here they don't mention it. Moses actually, in, in other parts in the Bible, it says he goes around and puts a spot of oil on each of the sons. But here they don't even mention it. Did you notice that? Hosea 4.6, later, when they forget the law of God and the priesthood is removed, then that anointing is going to be gone. So in 1 John 2, when new believers are anointed, they're anointed with the Holy Spirit, and the priesthood is reestablished in the New Testament. And that's the claim. That's why I started off with 1 Peter chapter 2, is he's claiming that there's a new royal priesthood that just got anointed by the Holy Spirit. So priests are entrusted with chapter 10, verse 11, teaching people the scriptures. And when they stop doing it, the priesthood is removed. But that's the that comes later when they screw it all up. For now, it's the beginning. Everything's good. They know their job and they're, they're intentioning to do it. Verse 14. And he brought the bull for the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. That word laid, kamak, remember is the word which means to press into the bull to the point where you're holding the bull up and you're pushing into it as hard as you can, which probably aggravates the bull a little bit, which makes this a hazardous moment <laughs> in case the bull gets out of control. But you push all that you can into that beast because the harder you push, the better the image is. And then Moses kills it, verse 15. And he took the blood and put some of the, on the horns of the altar all around with his finger, purified the altar, and he poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys with their fat. And Moses burned them up on the altar, ascended them. But the bull and its hide and its flesh and its offal, he burned with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. This makes the altar, this killing place, remember that's what the altar means, is killing place a consecrated space, and it's now been claimed for holiness. A lot like the cross. Here's a place of death that's going to get claimed for holiness. The first official sin offering is now given. That inaugurates the whole system. Genesis and Exodus had both burnt offerings and peace offerings, but this is the first time a sin offering gets given. And we know it's a sin offering because they're bringing that stuff outside the camp. It meets the requirements of the Chapter 4 sin offering. The bull is the substitution for them. The difference is from chapter 4 that the blood is taken to the tabernacle and it's used in the anointing process too. So there's a little bit of a, a difference from the consecration from what we saw in chapter 4. The sacrifice takes the fats, the oil, and ascends them to God. The rest of it goes outside the camp. Even the stuff we think is good is going to get thrown out here, right? So the fat and the offal goes to God and the like the T-bone steak is actually just going to get burnt up outside the camp. All of this is part of this process. Then he brought the ram as the burnt offering. So now we're going to do a burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses killed it. Then he sprinkled the blood all around the altar and cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat, and then he washed the entrails and the legs in water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, made an offering made by fire to the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. So, <coughs> so now they're atoned for. They've had a sin offering. They've had a burnt offering. Exactly, it follows all the prescription of chapter 1 and what we saw there. 
and now we can move forward. It's unique to the priesthood. It's not necessarily something that gets done where you put these together for the general public, but for the priesthood, they're kind of combining these. So in verse 14, it's a sin offering. In verse 18, it's a burnt offering. The sin is the imputed righteousness is taken care of, and the burnt offering handles the holiness. So you have those two elements. Both are because the Hebrews had a built-in understanding that their priests were not perfect. I just love that imagery. There's no illusion here that these priests are perfect people, right? They need these offerings to be consecrated and to be holy in the first place. So Hebrews 7.28 says, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. So when the writer of Hebrews is writing and commenting on this, he's saying, look, we knew that we had priests with weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who's been perfected forever. What happens when your high priest has no sin and doesn't need these offerings? They're expected to try to be holy even though holiness isn't always welcomed. And I think that's so relevant today. When you tell people at work you're just trying to be holy, they, they look at you like you're some sort of pariah. Why would you restrain yourself from these things that we like to do and you're just trying to be holy and, you, and, and they think that you're nuts by not doing things that they think you should be doing too? And, you, well, and there's lots of reasons. Well, I want to be set apart for God. I want to do things that focus on God. And frankly, those things you're asking me to do don't bring joy and peace. But being close to God, having fellowship with God brings amazing amounts of joy and peace. So you think I'm a joyful, happy, peaceful person, but then you're asking me to do things that don't result in joy and peace and happiness. So it's an odd thing. So these priests are trying to be holy and to be set apart and to be consecrated. Verse 22, And then he brought the second ram, the ram of consecration, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses killed it. They also took some of its blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, so he still hasn't put his shoes on. Then he brought Aaron's sons and Moses and put some of the blood on the tips of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood all around on the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail. Remember, sheep didn't have their tails cropped in the Middle East, so they get these big, fat, ugly tails on the back, so they're burning that up on the altar, the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and their fat, and the right thigh, and from the basket of unleavened bread that was set before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, a cake of bread anointed with oil, and one wafer, and put them on the fat on the right and on the right thigh. He put all of these in Aaron's hands and in his son's hands, and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Lord, I'm going to give these to you, God owns them, he hands them back to the priests, and they get to keep them. <coughs> Much of the same symbolism as we've seen before. There's a wave offering, you give it to God, he gives it back. What's new here is that the blood offering, the meat, gets off, offered as Leviticus 17.11 with the bread, and then they got this thing with the, the ears, the thumbs, and the, the toes. And it's what you think. The right side of the body to the Hebrews was the strong side of the Bible because clearly people who were right-handed made that decision for the Hebrews. So the symbolism is that you're going to give your ears, your hands that do work, and your feet that do walking are given over to the Lord. And those pieces are things. It also kind of encompasses the whole body, ears to thumbs to feet. Your whole body is given over to God. 
And all of these indicate giving their best to God when they do things. Serving God comes with promises. In fact, if you really want a nice midweek Bible study for yourself, Psalm 119 is the alphabet psalm. And it's all about the promises of God. If you serve him, here's the blessings that come with it. So there's lots of blessings to being or trying to be holy or working towards holiness. And they're listed, but they come with this idea that you give your mind, your hands, and your feet to God in order to get that. If you listen to God with your ears, you give your skill and service to God with your hands, and you walk and you go where God wants you to go with your feet. And that's a life in Christ. That's a life in serving God. Waving these around, this is just one of those, I'm thinking to myself, if you've got raw fat, it's slippery, right? So if you've got fat and then you're trying to balance cakes on it and you've got all this stuff going around and then you're trying to wave it and wave it back, I just want to know which of Aaron's sons like dropped it. <laughs> like it had, somebody had to because that would have been really slippery and sticky and messy. And at some point throughout 2,000 years, somebody had to drop it at some point. But they're kind and graceful. They don't even mention that. So God doesn't put that in his permanent, permanent record. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar, on the burnt offering. They were consecration offerings for a sweet aroma. We're going to do this because it smells good to God. That was an offering made by fire to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it as a wave offering before the Lord. And it was Moses' part of the ram consecration, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron with his garments, his sons, and the garments of the sons with him. Now, whoever sewed those beautiful garments had to get a little worked up when they saw this happen. Because they just made, they probably spent a month making these beautiful garments, right? And then Moses just sprays blood all over them. And blood stains. So there's an element of the peace offering here with the waving. The wave offering is part of the peace offering. Moses fellowships and eats it with them. Did you notice that Moses got a little piece of this one? So we've done a sin offering, a burnt offering. There's elements of the peace offering here. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and eat it there with the bread that's in the basket of consecration offerings as I commanded Aaron, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. What remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire. And you shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are ended. So they just got to sit out there for seven days. And they were probably really grateful when people from the congregation would come and chat with them because they're just sitting there. So they get to know people and communicate with people and just be available to people for that period of time. For seven days, he shall consecrate you. And God's going to do that work in their life. Seven days is, again, a perfect or a complete number. Gets used again and again through the Bible in that sense. So they're going to sit for seven days. They're going to spend that time with God. I think it's interesting that before they start their ministry, they're going to spend a perfect amount of time with God and in that tabernacle and in God's presence so that God can do something in their heart. Here it's literal. Today it's more figurative. Before you start a ministry, how much time are you spending with God on your own? How much time do you spend in the Word? Again, God does the consecrating here, not Moses or Aaron or any other human. Eating doesn't start the process. I like this. It ends the process. 
when they partake and they fellowship, it's because everything's been done. So as they do this, after washing, after clothing, after being atoned for, after handling their sin, the eating then is personal. It's part of the inward because you consume something and put it inward in your body. It's active and it fills a, a physical need. So is the work of the ministry. It's personal, it's inward, it's active, and it kind of fills a need. The closer you get to God, the more you want to serve people and love people and take care of people around you. And it's a wonderful thing to see that happen. It's a wonderful thing when a person of God thinks, I would like to bring Rice Krispie bars with chocolate all over the top of them. Because we're all blessed by that. And it's the outpouring of a heart that just says, I just want to bless people that bless me. And that's how the kingdom is supposed to work. Not out of obligation, but out of love and care. And rice cookers. Verse 34. As he has done this day, so the Lord has commanded us to do, to make atonement for you. Therefore you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord. Sit there like soldiers and keep that charge, that duty, that command so that you may not die. For I have been commanded. So Aaron and his sons did all the things the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. Notice in these last few verses that the word command gets used three times. Their first work is to spend this time with God, but they're commanded to do it. And when you're commanded to do something and then they do it, that's called obedience. And obedience has taken a kind of a bad name on in our culture today. To obey seems to be almost like a bad thing, right? To obey authority, to submit to authority, to honor your father and mother. Those are things that are kind of under attack right now. You should never obey. You should rebel. You should challenge the man and do all these things. But the priests don't start that way. They start by complying and obeying what God has told them to do and to be in that place where they do it. It's clear here that it's God's command. Moses has made that point throughout chapter 8. And the command here is Sava or Shava. There's one of those Hebrew CHs that I can't pronounce. So with my Minnesota accent, the word is Sava. You see it three times. The first time that obedience gives you a personal relationship with God or there's atonement there, right? To make atonement for you, verse 34. The second time you see it, the obedience equals life so that you will not die, so that you have life. Being obedient to God gives life to your ministry. And then the third time you see it, it's really about chain of command. Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded through the hand of Moses. So they were trusting that Moses was in the chain of command above them. God can work through Moses. This is a tough thing for me to submit to because I have to believe then that when I've chosen to be a part of a church body, that that choice that I've made puts me in a chain of command in the kingdom of God. And this is, this is sticky territory. It's tough for all of us as believers, especially in the American church, because if we don't like a church, we just go to a different one. And we become the church of the disgruntled. We just bounce around to churches trying to find one that meets all of our needs and does everything we want it to do and says everything we want it to say. But if you find a church where they're teaching the word of God faithfully and they're fellowshipping with each other and blessing one another in love, you are in a chain of command where that pastor may hear things from God about your life that you may have to submit to. Because sometimes we're so stubborn we don't hear it for ourselves. And God will use brothers and sisters in the faith to come tell us about that. And that's part of what's going on. At least the third form here is that Aaron and his sons are trusting that 
Moses has heard it correctly from God. And they're just going to obey a human because they believe that human's been put in that position by God. They didn't have to have a lot of faith that Moses was put there by God because they saw oceans parting and locusts and all sorts of things, rivers turning to blood. So it wasn't that hard to believe Moses was appointed. For us, it's a lot harder to believe that our pastor has been put in that position by God and that we then have to pay attention to that. We also have pastors in the ministry today that abuse their position. And that's tough because we have to use discernment when we do that because you can have people that are in that position that aren't anointed by God. So luckily the New Testament deals with that a lot more than the Old Testament. The Old Testament just assumes you obey and you submit to the rules because God gave them. So, yeah, I went off on that a little bit. Ministry here starts by obeying God, humility to God, and those things. The idea of command in the Bible is a consistently good theme. <laughs> I'll make one reference to the New Testament on this. When Jesus said, John 15, verse 14, you're my friends. We like that part of the verse. If you do whatever I command you, and he puts a condition on that, you're friends with Jesus if you do what he commands you to do. And the opposite then of that truth would be you're not a friend with Jesus if you don't do what he tells you to do. So when we read through what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the Mount of Olives, the, the discourses that are throughout the Gospels, and we're not doing what Jesus says to do, then we're not friends with Jesus. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we are. Same thing's true in the Old Testament. If you do these things like you're being told to do them, if you make these sacrifices the way you're supposed to, you're friends with God, which is the upside. But we don't get to set the terms of our relationship with God. And I think that's a really tough thing for we as humans. It's the original sin that we think we know better than God how to make a relationship with God. And it doesn't work that way. Um, the reality is if we want a relationship with God, we have to get to know what God wants and we have to understand what he says for us to do and then we have to do it. Not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. It says that they have to stay at the door in these last verses. I just got this image of people that are in the ministry just having to be there. They just have to learn how to be available and be there for people. That means the two o'clock phone call that means sitting up with somebody who's grieving or someone who wants to talk through a big life decision. That means spending money on coffee shops way more than any human should have to do. That kind of ministry, that kind of serving people and being in communion with people is a lifetime journey and it's going to start by just sitting in the doorway, just being there and being available. The priests then get to share in what God has set at a table for them. They get to commune with God. What a privilege. They are consecrated. They are set apart. There's no compromise here. There is no lukewarm priests. They are all in. They've just been consecrated. They're going to be set apart by their clothing. So they are completely set apart. Sometimes I think the collars that, you know, some of the denominations wear, it just makes it easier because everybody can see that you're set apart, right? And we don't go to that kind of denomination, but it would be really nice when you walk into an airport and people can just see you're a minister, that, that you're set apart for that work. But it shouldn't be the clothes that we put on that make us ministers. It should be the Holy Spirit in our heart that makes that happen. So I also understand why we don't wear collars in my denomination, and I don't know whatever denominations you go to if they do, but I like that idea of being visually set apart. 
They love the Lord. They love the law of God. They love the order that God provides, the grace that he provides, the peace and the fellowship. And then they use that to love the world. Israel is supposed to be a light to the world. And the priests are going to see that happen. In doing that, they're not supposed to love the world or try to be like the world. They're supposed to be better than the world. And I see that just every time I look at the news today. Every issue that comes up, everything that the news people want me to get excited about and get me all worked up emotively about, those things just keep getting thrown at us all the time. And it's not just, it's TV commercials telling me what I should want and what I should desire, right? And, and they're very good at making that happen, but the world really doesn't have much to offer us when it comes to happiness and peace. 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's no lukewarm thing there. It's all in or all out. <coughs> it amazes me how cold Minnesota is and how many lukewarm people we have here. <laughs> Where does your love reside? And I think that's what chapter 8 is all about, is if you go through this idea and you're feeling yourself move towards being set apart, being consecrated by God, and I think you can be loved by God and be saved, without going to this level of ministry, right? Most Christians don't go here, right? But something might start stirring in your heart where you really just want to love the Lord and do these kinds of things, to serve in these kinds of ways, to minister to the people that you go to work with, to start to be a minister to your students, to start to be a minister in the workplace with your boss, your colleagues. But it starts with who do you seek, who do you serve, who do you humble yourself in front of, and, and how are you going to do that? It goes all the way to the end of the Bible with this idea of cold or hot, right? So you know, most of you know this verse, Revelation 3.15. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold. So then because you were lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God doesn't mince words over this. You're either serving God or you're serving the world. You can't serve both. And it's a consistent theme, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through. In chapter 8, this consecration process for priests, they are all in at the end of this. They are committed. They are set apart. They're there to do that ministry. Their whole lives are given to hanging out in that temple courtyard and doing their thing. It's also an honor and a privilege because they don't have to work the fields, right? But they are going to work the bakery, keep that bread going. They're going to work the barbecue and keep the meat going, and then they're going to serve the people and minister to the people all the time. And they have all these big feasts to plan, so they're going to be in constant preparation mode to get the feasts ready and get that going. That's it for tonight, because chapter 9 and 10 I think I'm going to do together, and I didn't want to do a big, long night again two weeks in a row. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for the priesthood and the image it gives us for us to be servants of your kingdom and what it takes, how important it is. Lord, there's an order and a process to how you set people apart and how you anoint them. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that has a heart for ministry and service, Lord, that you that your Holy Spirit just descends on them this week, gives them eyes to see the people around them, Lord, so that they can serve and fill needs. Lord, I pray that you give them ears to hear uh, the people that are hurting, the people that are desperate, Lord, for meaning in their life and that you give them a boldness with their tongue to speak the truth of the Bible, that God loves them, God has a plan for their life, and God will take anyone from anywhere, even sinful people, and he can turn them into priests. Lord, that's the grace that you give. It's the, the system you set up. 
Lord, we are so blessed by that. We thank you, God, for being a good and a holy God and true. And that in every way that your your word holds up, Lord, to be a, a pathway for our lives and a guide for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.